And today we're going to be looking at verses uh, 12 to 24. Now, as we turn there, uh, let me start us off this way. Uh, Growing up, when I was uh, in my teens, uh, my favorite band, still remains my favorite band to this day, was a hip-hop band called The Roots. Some of you may recognize them as the house band, I believe, for the Jimmy Fallon show, but before they made it big uh, on TV, they were actually everybody's favorite uh, underground band. And I remember growing up, Uh, I just loved everything about them. I bought every single album that they came out that they released. Uh, This was before kind of Google made it big. And so, you know, I did the research that I could and every single one of the members. And so if you were to give me uh, their names, starting from the vocalist down to every single instrumentalist, I knew their background, where they came from, what instrument they played. And I remember, you know, with every album that would come out, my friends and I would go. uh, They had record stores back then called Tower Records. And we would stand outside just waiting for the store to open so that we can rush in and spend our hard-earned cash on what was then called the compact discs, if you remember them. Um, And so needless to say, you know, we were huge fans. And I remember going to a lot of their shows. And in particular, I remember this one show that they had in Boston. Uh, We were there, and we were standing outside of the venue just waiting for the show to start. And to our great surprise, we see a huge black van pull up. See the door slide open. And out came the members of the legendary Roots. And we were so happy and we rushed towards them. And for us, we felt like we knew them. We were so intimate with them. We knew their music. We knew their story. And so it was like a big reunion for us. And we said, hey, Roots, you know, and we were calling out the individual members and we were talking about how great of a fan we were. Here's the problem, though. They had no idea who we were. <laughs> and so naturally, they were very cordial and kind and polite. They said their hellos, but simply walked past us. And it was a reminder for me then that it's one thing to know about someone and you can know great detail, great a lot, a lot of information about them. It's a whole other thing for them to know you. Whole other thing to actually have a relationship with them. See, many Christians were used to talking about Christianity as not a religion, but as a relationship with God. But the question is, what in the world does it mean to have a relationship with God? Do you talk to him every day? Does he speak to you? What does it look like? Do you have lunch with him? And so if you were to look throughout scripture, if you look through the gospels, it's explained in a number of different ways throughout scripture. But if you look through the gospels, it's described as being a part of the kingdom of God. And so as we look at this text on this post-Easter Sunday, we'll learn what it means to be a part of the kingdom of the risen King Jesus and what it means for us to have a relationship with them. And so with that being said, let me read for you uh, from today's text again. It comes from Luke 14, verses 12 to 24. So let me read it for you now. He, uh, meaning Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, 
and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master, to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there is still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Amen. Now, before we get to the text itself, uh, just to open us up, let me give you a little bit of context, and I'll explain to you why this context is important. Now, in Jesus' day, it's important for us to remember that when a traveling rabbi or a teacher came through town, it was customary uh, for the religious authorities and the leaders of the community to invite this leader or this teacher or rabbi over to their house for a meal. And so they would be sitting down, and and that was an opportunity for the people of the community, at least those who were esteemed in the community, uh, would be able to get a a sense of the kind of teaching that the teacher or the rabbi would uh, provide. And that's the setting that we find Jesus here in chapter 4. And it was typically a buttoned-up affair. Right? Uh, with the religious authorities and the leaders of the community being involved, you could imagine that it was uh, a, a classy affair. And, and, and you know, though only those who were esteemed, those who were highly respected by the community, uh, would be at that meal. Now, Jesus finding himself in a situation like this, and if you were to read through the Gospels, what you would find is that Jesus has this tendency to make things awkward in polite company. And so if you look at earlier in the chapter, uh, he is confronted by what Jesus deemed to be false teaching on the Sabbath. And so he uh, very strongly corrects that erroneous teaching on the Sabbath. But then he turns his attention uh, to those who are sitting around him, those who are sitting in seats of honor. And he basically tells them, don't sit in the places of honor because you might, be go, you might be asked to move down. Rather, take up the seats of humility that are farther from the host so that you may be moved up and thereby making everybody that were sitting close to him feel very, very uncomfortable. And then he takes it a step further. He looks at everybody that's seated around him, and this is where we pick up in our passage, and he basically says, uh, be careful when you hold these dinner parties about who you invite. Don't invite the people that are closer to you. Don't invite only the esteemed of the community, those who can pay you back for your hospitality in the form of social or financial capital. 
No, instead, invite those who are outcasts and outsiders of the community, and thereby rebuking basically everybody that was at the dinner party, making things very uncomfortable. And what we find here in verse 15, if you look there, we find an awkward situation. And in every awkward situation, somebody's going to need to break the ice. So we find that one of the uh, people who were reclining at table with him basically blurts out, right? What does he say? Uh, he blurts out saying, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's basically something that everybody would have agreed. It's like, it's like saying when things get awkward, hey, uh, look at the weather. Isn't it nice outside? Or, hey, have you seen the Knicks game? How about them Knicks? They're doing well this season. Something that is innocuous, something that everybody would agree. And everybody at the dinner table would have expected Jesus to respond by saying, yes, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Those who are upright, those who are morally upstanding, right? Those who are loyal to the God of Israel. Yes, indeed. And everybody would have moved on. But instead, what do we find Jesus doing? Now, Jesus doesn't take the bait. He goes after them even harder. Now, why am I providing this context for you? It's because when we read the Bible, our kind of Western modern thinking tells us that what's important for us is to extract meaning from the text and apply it to our lives. But what we find in texts like this is, is that it is just as important for us to hear and experience and internalize the tone of the text and have, it, uh, have its full weight uh, be upon us if you want the Bible to speak to us. And so for us today, it's important for us as we sit under this text to experience the same kind of agitation and disruption that Jesus brought to this party in order for us to really understand what it means for us to have a relationship with God. If we want our church to not just represent just another religious institution, but if you want our church right here at Grace Church to indeed represent the kingdom of God, we need to have this text speak to us with its full weight behind it. So having said that, let's dive into this text together, and we're going to find three things that it teaches us about the kingdom of God. The first thing that it'll teach us is what the kingdom of God is like, Secondly, we'll examine what, uh, who gets in. And lastly, we'll take a look at what comes out. What the kingdom of God is like, who gets in, and what comes out of it. Okay? So first, what it's like. What is the kingdom of God like? Now here in this parable, we find that Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a great banquet. Now I want us to stop there and think about it for this whole point. Um, because at this point, Jesus had all of these different imageries at his disposal. He could have compared the kingdom of God to a sports team. He could have compared the kingdom of God to a military unit, right? One in which everybody comes together uh, around this great cause and we're going to fight and we're going to achieve victory, right? He could have compared it to that. He could have compared it to a, 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 a moral gathering of people who are upright, he could have used anything to convey what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, but the imagery that he uses is that of a great banquet. Why? 
Well, it's because Jesus had a deep understanding of the Old Testament that already gave us a picture of what the kingdom of God would be like. If you were to look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 25, verse 6 to 9, we get a great sense of what Jesus is talking about here. And I believe it's going to be up on the screen, uh, but let me read it for you. Here's what Isaiah 25 says. Uh, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Do you hear the prophet Isaiah? And do you see what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the kingdom of God being a great banquet? And what it means to have a relationship with him. Do you see in this passage? Rich foods, well-aged, top-of-the-shelf wine. Do you see God's desire for his people and what he wants his relationship with his people to be like? What this text tells us is that the kingdom of God is one that is filled with celebration, life-changing, world-altering joy. He's describing for us what he desires out of a relationship with his people. And Jesus was well aware of this. And that's why, what was the first miracle that Jesus ever performed? We find this in John chapter 2. He's in a wedding celebration. He's at a party and it's dying down. Why? They ran out of wine. And so what does Jesus do? He turns water into the finest wine. Why? Because the kingdom of God is one that is a feast. And that's the kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing into the world And that is the kingdom that Jesus will bring into your heart if you were to have a relationship with him. Many, many years ago, when I first became a Christian, I read a book that absolutely changed my life and the way I viewed Christianity. And it's a book called Desiring God by John Piper. Many of you may be familiar uh, with it. There he coined this term Christian hedonism. And here's what he says, Christian hedonism is the conviction that God's ultimate goal for the world, which is his glory, and our deepest desire, which is to be happy, are one and the same because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Now let me pause here and ask you, when you are thinking about what it means to have a relationship with God, What is it that you're after, really? Is it for self-improvement? Is it for an improved relationship with your loved ones? Is it better performance at work? What is it that you're after? 
Because what it means to have a relationship with God is to have this otherworldly joy that comes into your life. The kind of joy, as we find in Isaiah 25, that has a power to wipe away every tear from your face. The kind of joy that has the power to swallow up death forever. Is that what you are after when you're pursuing a relationship with God? Because anything less than that, you're pursuing something that is inferior to what is in store for you when you come into the presence of God. And if you are used to the kind of shallow spirituality that just makes you a good person, your taste buds have not acquired the taste for the goodness that is God himself. A couple of years ago, it was like three years ago, I think, <clears throat> uh, a, f- a couple of friends of mine took me out to this really famous uh, steakhouse called Del Frisco's. They have one in Manhattan. I think it's a chain. And there, for the first time in my life, I tasted properly cooked, dry-aged tomahawk steak. And I kid you not, I was sitting there, and I saw the plate come out, and I, it was like a big tray. And, and I had this big tomahawk steak right in front of me, and I said, Okay, now I see why it's called a tomahawk steak. This thing is huge. And I remember slicing into it, and I picked up a piece of steak, and I put it in my mouth. And I have to tell you, the word delicious cannot even begin to describe the glory that entered into my mouth and the explosion of flavor that I experienced there. And you know what? It was three years ago, and I haven't had it since then, unfortunately. But even as I describe the sensation to you, I can, my taste buds remember and can recall. Friends, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Because that's what his plan is for you. If you are to enter into a relationship with him, accept nothing less. Now let me pause here real quickly and say, some of you may be saying, you know what? I desire that so much with all of my being to experience the pleasure of God, to experience his joy in my life, but I can't because I am going through such a difficult time in my life. I can't even begin to imagine what it's like to be joyful beyond belief, let alone just be happy. And here's where I say Christianity is absolutely real in its depiction of suffering. Even in a passage that is describing an otherworldly joy, it still says the joy will what? Wipe away the tears in your eyes. It does not erase it out of existence. No, it acknowledges the tears, it acknowledges the sufferings. But here's where Christianity imbues meaning into your suffering with that joy. When you are suffering, why is it that you are devastated? Why is it that when you're going through suffering after suffering, you turn your gaze towards heaven and ask God, why, why am I going through this? Why? Because deep down inside, every single one of us, we know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. People are not supposed to get sick. The virus that has devastated our country is not supposed to be. We should not be here socially distanced with masks on our faces. This was not God's intention for the world. Because God's intention for the world is Isaiah 25. 
And so when you are going through suffering, if you have a relationship with God, you understand what was meant to be. It allows you to lament well. It allows you to grieve well. And even in the midst of your despair, it allows you to hope well in the God of resurrection, God whose intention for the world is that which is filled with joy and feasting. So what is the kingdom of God like? It is like a great banquet. Now with that being said, who are the ones that get in? Now for that, let's get into the meat of the text and the parable itself. Now it tells of a great banquet and an invitation that goes out, that, that's gone out. And in Jesus' day, here's how invitations work. There would be, whenever somebody would hold a great banquet, uh, there would be two sets of invitations that would go out. The first one uh, would be gone out just as a general notification to everybody. And the servant of the master would go out and let everybody know that there's a banquet coming on such and such a day and would gauge interest from the general public. And naturally, uh, the greater the banquet was, right, there are certain kinds of people that would be invited. And once the servant would gauge interest and have an idea of who uh, said they would come, they would go back to the master, and based on those numbers, they would then prepare a meal. But once the meal was prepared, the second set of invitations would go out to the community that would, and the, people, the servant would go out to the people that were invited and say, hey, the, the, the food is ready, the banquet is ready to be held, now come in. Now in this parable, we are told of the second of those invitations. And here's the tragedy. We find in verse 18, it says, they all alike began to make excuses saying we can't come what are the kinds of excuses that would be given first person says you know what i'm so sorry i bought a field and so i have to go see to it now but here's the thing buying a field much like buying a house today was a great investment so it was a long and drawn out process which means you would have had all that time to make sure that the field was ready for you to farm in or to make use of in the way that you wanted it to. So why is it that this moment, when the banquet is ready, that you all of a sudden are too busy to come and have to go out and look at the field? Now you're going to do the work after you've made the purchase? And the second person comes, and, and when they're approached, they say, you know, I, I'm, I'm so sorry, I just buy, I bought uh, five uh, yokes of oxen, and I need to uh, go examine them and test them out. And again, buying oxen was a great investment because, I mean, that was the tool that they used for farming and uh, things like that. And so naturally, you would want to make sure those, you know, oxen were good. But again, it was such a big investment that people would have been meticulous in making sure and testing them out before they made the purchase. So again, when the banquet is ready, now you have to go test out your oxen? And the third person says, you know what, um, I, I, I got married, and uh, my wife will not let me go, so I can't go, sorry. Wait, you had all this time to, per did you get married like right this instant? You had all this time to prepare for a wedding, and there's this great banquet that you were notified of before. Did you just get married? Can't you bring your wife? Two? 
whatever the reason is, these people are making excuses on not being able to come. And so understandably, what happens with the master? He is angry. But what does the master do with his anger? He turns it into grace. He looks at the empty banquet hall. He turns to a servant and he instructs the servant to go out and invite those who normally wouldn't be caught dead in the kind of banquet that the master is about to throw. He says, go out into the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and lame. And so, and so the servant brings them in. And when he's told that there's still room in the banquet hall, what does he tell the servant to do? He sends the servant out, outside of the city, to the highways and hedges. And what does he say? Compel people to come in. And we'll see this in a moment. Highways and hedges, uh, people that were there were outsiders of the outsiders. They, they were a rung below the poor, crippled, lame, and blind. Compel them to come in. I mean, these are the people that would have thought that there was a, it was a practical joke that was being played on them, being invited to this great banquet. Are you kidding me? A person like me? I don't even live in the city. And uh, there's this Hebrew scholar named, and I apologize in advance, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of his name, uh, but I believe uh, it's pronounced Ibn al-Tayyib, uh, puts this really well. When he notices that in verse 23, the master tells a servant to compel them to come in, or the translation that he uses is oblige them to come in. And here's what he says. Oblige them to come in. This does not mean compulsion or force or persecution, but refers to the strength of the need for urgent solicitation because those living outside the town see themselves as unworthy to enter into the places of the rich and eat banquets. Such outsiders need someone to confirm that there is indeed a welcoming awaiting them there. These were the kinds of people that the master was delighted to invite into the banquet. So again, let's go back to the question, who gets in? In a word, no one gets in unless they're invited. But if you're asking the question of who's kept out, no one unless they disinvite themselves. And notice... The people, as much as they're making excuses, they're disinviting themselves over good things. A field, oxen, a wife. Absolutely. But the, these things were just good enough to keep them satisfied for the moment. Do you identify with any of that? The things in your life that occupy your imagination and your time and your resources that keep you from a vibrant relationship with God, from responding to the invitation. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Pastor Aaron preached on it a number of weeks ago, you may remember. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, blessed are not the middle class in spirit. No, 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 no. Blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
And what's interesting, if you look at, go all the way down to verse 24, Jesus uh, says, For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. For those of you that have personal Bibles that have footnotes, you might realize that under, uh, next to the word you, there's a footnote that leads you to the bottom, and it says you here is plural. Here's why that's significant. Jesus is telling this parable as if it was about somebody else. But as he gets to the end, he looks around and he is directly addressing the people that are present at the dinner table and says, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Why? You're not poor in spirit. Friends, it's the woman at the well who had been divorced five times and at her encounter with Jesus was living with a man that was not her husband. It is the girl who used to be possessed, literally possessed by a demon doing its bidding that is delivered and invited and participates in the kingdom of God. It is the sinner, the tax collector, the spiritually impoverished that, ta- that get in. <clears throat> Friends, that's why many missions organizations say Iran, a country that is a uh, a Muslim theocracy with heavy, heavy persecution is the fastest growing evangelical movement in the entire world. And that's why many, when many Christian leaders look at American evangelicalism, they say that the biggest problem with us is not our politics, it's not the culture wars, it's not the social media that is distracting us. They say that the greatest danger, the greatest threat to American Christianity and our greatest sickness is that we've been lulled into a sense of security to a point where we don't know how to suffer well, where we don't know what it means to live under persecution. They would tell us that we don't know what it means to be poor in spirit. So today, if you are here, or to those of you who are tuning in, you're saying to yourself, I'm poor in spirit. I'm at the end of my rope. I've tried and tried and tried to live a life that is pleasing to God. I've tried to live up to the expectations that I set for myself in terms of the life that I wanted to live. And I just can't do it. If you're at the end of your rope, Jesus would say, you got it. You're in. But at this point, we, I, I have to personally, I don't know where you all are, ask the question, wait, How about those who are not poor in spirit now? I don't feel the need for him acutely as I should. Is it hopeless for us? The answer is absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. Because this kind of spiritual poverty is something that can be learned. Many, many years ago when I was in uh, seminary, I think 13 years ago, I had read about this movement of what's called the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Uh, this was a movement that occurred between 3rd and 5th centuries. Uh, these were men and women who grew tired of the kind of shallow discipleship that they saw in churches. And they realized that they were not poor in spirit. And so what they decided to do is they went away into the Egyptian deserts. And what they were trying to do with that was they were trying to flee from the conveniences of life to spend time with God. 
And what we found over time, you would think they would be hermits that are out of touch with reality and they're going to go be crazy over there and the world's going to move on without them. What they found was that over the years, they had ordinary people making the trek out to the Egyptian deserts, even royalty. We have an account of an emperor who went out to the Egyptian deserts in the middle of nowhere to find these fathers and mothers, to seek their counsel, to seek their spiritual direction. Why? Because out there, these people cultivated the kind of spiritual poverty that allowed them to really see the riches of God's banquet, what it means to have an intimate relationship with a God who brings joy into your life. And out of that flowed wisdom wisdom unsurpassed that brought good to the world around them. Now, how can we cultivate that kind of spiritual poverty? Should we move our entire church to a desert nearby? In Nevada, perhaps. No. But here's what we can do. This is why so many Christians fast. It's an essential spiritual discipline. They may fast from food. They may fast from the distractions of social media. They may fast from the practice and the ritual of spending money on ourselves and instead giving them away. They fast from watching TV, whatever the case may be, to deprive yourself voluntarily of the kind of conveniences that we take for granted. And to stop, for those of us that are in Christian ministry, from one capacity to another, to stop doing things for God in favor of sitting still and being with God. That is how we can cultivate it. And I'm telling you, I'm stumbling along, and I fail over and over again, but this is something that I'm learning to do in my life. But you know, what I'm experiencing and what I can guarantee you from the witness of Christian history, church history, is that if you were to build this into your life regularly, you will experience the power and the joy of God in ways that you will never understand if you are not to make this a regular rhythm of your life. So that's one way we can learn, to fast, to say no to the pleasures of life. But a second way in which we can do it is by spending time. And not just serving, but spending time with the poor and the marginalized. Again, not to do stuff for them, but to learn from them. To learn from their faith that is born out of their neediness. To learn from their resolve. To learn from their wisdom. That is another way in which we can learn. And friends, my prayer is that together we can, as a church, learn to be poor in spirit. And accept this invitation from God to eat with him at his table because there are pleasures to be found there that cannot be given by anything that the world has to offer because who gets in the poor and the needy the marginalized those who know that they are in need of a savior so that's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God this great banquet that is responded to by the poor in spirit. But what comes out of a vibrant relationship with God? Let's look at this last point. And for this last point, let's focus on one character in the parable that often gets overlooked, the servant. 
We find that the servant is obviously intimate with the master. The servant knows the master well. And it's likely that the servant lived with the master. Therefore, the servant would have known the will of the master. And the servant was to carry out the will of the master. And what do we find in this parable once the invitations were uh, discarded and ignored by the people that were invited? We find in verse 21, what does the master tell the servant? He says, go out quickly. Gather up all of these people. And so what does a servant do? Servant does what he's asked to. This is the kind of job that he wouldn't have anticipated having to do. Because normally these great banquets, again, were buttoned up affairs, all the royalty came. But, but the servant says, okay, I'll do what you tell me to do. And so he gathers up all of these people and he's leading them back to the banquet hall. And I'm sure he was self-conscious, right, leading this group of misfits and outcasts and outsiders back to the banquet hall. But there's a change that happens in the servancy because as he watches the banquet hall get filled slowly, we see that he begins to be energized. How do we know that? We know that because he goes back to the master. If you look at verse 22, he says, Sir, what you have commanded, uh, what you commanded has been done. He could have stopped right there, right? He did what he was supposed to do. But then what does he say? And I'm so moved every time I come across this verse because he says, Sir, what you commanded has been done. And he says, And still, and still there is room for more people to be invited in. And what does the master tell him to do? He tells him to go out farther than he's gone before. Go out farther than what's comfortable for you. He tells him to go outside of the city halls into the highways and the hedges. You know what they were? You found safety within the city walls. But these highways, that, these roads that connected city to city were dangerous. You recall the, good, the parable of the Good Samaritan? Remember that in Luke 10? Where is the guy robbed? It says on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was on the highway that you and the hedges you would find the robbers, the murderers, the criminals, the untouchables, the outlaws. These were the kinds of people that you would want to shield your children from. And the master says, at the risk of your life, I want you to go outside of the city walls, go into the most dangerous places that you could find, and find the people there and bring them in to this great banquet. Outside of the city, outside of your comfort, outside of even your safety. People you would never associate with. Bring them in, the master says. Do you see God's heart in what he asks the servant to do? And that is the Great Commission. Because if you look at the book of Acts, also written by Luke, here's what Jesus says. You will be my witnesses, and notice the movement here, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we often talk about the geographical movement, but we should not, and coming, especially coming from Luke, miss the social implications of that. What kind of right-minded Jew would ever associate with a Samaritan? Why in the world would they go all the way out to Samaria? Because that's what the master asks of every servant to do. 
See, the call for every person that has the privilege of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, that has responded to the call to join God in his great banquet, is then sent out with this invitation. And so how can we live this out? And I love how Rosaria Butterfield says it. It's through radically ordinary hospitality. And here's... I'm sorry. Just technology. I need to fast from it. Next time I'll have paper and pen. But here's what Rosaria Butterfield says. She says, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. I love that quote. But let me make a slight tweak to what she's saying here as we look at this text in particular and in our context here in Ridgewood. Instead of underprivileged, I would extend that out to say anyone who we as churchgoers normally would never associate with. Now, why do I say that? It's because when Jesus mentions the poor, the crippled, the lame, and blind, it's not that he favored those people who were not that, and when they refused the invitation, then the invitation went to them. No, Jesus was using the rhetoric and the culture of that day because in their religious community at the time, if you fell into one of those categories, you were not allowed to participate in the religious life of the community. So in essence, Jesus specifically is calling out these people and saying, those people that you churchgoers would never associate with, those people are the ones that are to be invited into the banquet. So let's use our imagination here. Who are the kinds of people that you would never ever imagine would set foot through those doors? That, friends, is our call. To extend hospitality to them. To invite them into our social circle. To invite them into our homes. And that is the vision that this text has given to us, asking us, what if, instead of fearing persecution and coercion by those who may not respond to the invitation and shielding our children and ourselves from them, what if we were actually discipled in the way of Jesus? And what if we actually trusted in the power of the Holy Spirit to keep us in him? What if we trusted in one another as a church to continue to encourage us in the faith, to not fear those who are different from us, those who would never set foot through those doors, and instead of shying away from persecution, what if we welcomed persecution for the sake of those who may respond to the invitation? The outsiders, those who would never, we would never associate with. What if in our ordinary acts of hospitality, we were radically different from the religious leaders who dined with Jesus? What if we took the call of Jesus seriously and invited not our friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, but the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind? See, <clears throat> as you may have heard, we have uh, Serve Jersey Week uh, that is coming up. And I want to encourage you to sign up for at least uh, one event. But as you do so, let me encourage you to think, 
what if I went in with this posture? What if I went into this with the posture of not just going out, but what if I went into this with a heart that's ready to draw in and receive those that I'm serving into my life? to share life with them, to learn from them, and to spend time with them. Christy Cataret, who's here with us today, she uh, heads up our Mercy and Justice Committee, and I love her vision for Serve Jersey Sunday. Because her vision is for this to not just be a one-off week in which we get to do some good things, but her vision is that Serve Jersey would lead to an ongoing relationship between the members of our congregation and the various organizations that we are serving with and the people that they serve. That is such a beautiful vision. Why? Because that right there captures the beating heart of God. It was God the Father who sent Jesus down. Right? Jesus was the one who left this heavenly home outside of the confines and the comforts and the safety of his home in heaven and came down into our world. And of course, he went to the upstanding religious leaders at the time that refused him. And instead, what did he do? He dined with sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. Can you imagine what that would look like today? We we talk about this as if it's nothing. But he actually dined with sinners. But also, not in small part, because he did that, he was persecuted, tried, sentenced to death. We find that Jesus carried the cross outside of the city, right through the highways and the hedges. He carried the cross on his back and went up the skull of hills and was literally nailed to the cross. Why did he do that? To bring us into the great banquet, to give us the life-changing grace that brought sinners like you and I to the kingdom of God, where we are promised the joys of God everlasting that we can experience now, but fully in the new heavens and the new earth. Do you realize that this gospel message is for you? Now let me close out today by saying, will you accept his invitation for you today? Live in light of the joy that is available for you. Will you learn what it means to be poor in spirit? And as you enjoy this relationship with God, will you give your life now to invite others into the great banquet? Let's pray together. Our Father, out of everything that was talked about today from the text, I personally am most moved by the fact that you were willing to invite the untouchables into your great banquet. And God, I have to confess before you, and I'm sure many of my brothers and sisters here are tuning in, would resonate with me when I say that I don't feel like I am poor in spirit. And so for those of us who are struggling with this, we ask that you would teach us what it means to be poor in spirit, what it means to be needy before you. And as we do so, we ask that you would fill us with the joy of our salvation, the feast and the rich foods and aged wine. Will you feed us, God? And as we are fed, we ask that you would send us out to the untouchables in our neighborhood in our children's schools, the neighbors next to us, across the street from us, our coworkers, 
we ask that you send us out to invite them into our midst. And may that change Bergen County, may that change New Jersey and beyond. And may we give you all the glory as we are satisfied in you. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, let me invite you to stand as we sing our song together. <laughs>